back to the China in the Caribbean podcast. Today we're going to have a deep dive chat with Kan E. Mil. He is a Thailand, Australian, Beijing-based international finance lawyer. We had a very wide-ranging conversation about all things BRI loan financing, and we even got into nitty-gritty on the interpretation of Chinese loan clauses. I had a great time chatting with Kan E, and I hope you enjoy our nuanced conversation about Chinese loans. Before we get going, I should point out that while Khan E is a lawyer, he is not your lawyer, and nothing in this conversation should be thought of as legal advice. With that in mind, so Khan E, we hear a lot now about China and BRI and loans and debt in general, but we don't have a very good understanding of what the institutions and the instruments do. So. When we think about China XM, when we think about CDB, we often conflict those two things. I say um, as well, and we usually don't discuss the other major players as well. So, Kanye, as a baseline for our、uh, conversation, who are the major players when it comes to international financing from China? Certainly. So,、uh, when when we talk about sort of. International finance or international project finance coming out of China, and in recent years, I think a lot of people refer to Belt and Road finance.、Uh, we have to understand that you know it's China is not one giant entity, and over the last twenty years,、uh, things have changed quite a bit. So, just taking a step back,、um, I think we're all aware that China's foreign direct investment. Really started in earnest with the announcement of the going out quote unquote policy in 1999. So that was、uh, basically the first time that China has announced the intention to start making investments and lending overseas.、Uh, in the initial stages, the idea was that they will lend and invest in security related、uh, assets. So, so in the very earlier years, you see a lot of investments in oil, in energy, in resources, in iron sands in Australia, and so on.、Uh, further down the road, then you saw an emphasis on food security. So you saw a lot of oil beans,、uh, and you know, of course, cocoa, you know, in Ghana, and so on. So, so, so there is that. So I, I think. I don't think it's、uh, it's right to say、uh, to 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 start the discussion without actually putting that into that context. Obviously, after twenty thirteen, now we have a name,、uh, a new name for the whole thing, which is the Belt and Road Initiative. So, if we were looking at the Belt and Road Initiative, there are a few stakeholders.、Uh, I think obviously、uh, the Chinese government is one because through the Ministry of Commerce, they provide the foreign aid. Uh, what is also known as the zero interest loan uh, uh, products.、Uh, those are probably what attracts a lot of the attention, especially in the、uh, developing countries. But I think it's important to note that they actually form about five percent of the over overall picture. So quite small, and typically these loans are you know no more than twenty million. So not really intended for your bridge or port or airport 
and nothing like that. Uh, I think these are meant to be technical assistance. And of course, over the last 18 months, uh, in fact, uh, you know, over history, uh, we've seen a standard practice that if countries get into trouble and they ask China for relief, uh, these loans are, are the first ones to be written off. Okay. Uh, obviously, when we talk about BRI financing nowadays, uh, the, the, the bank that comes to everyone's mind is China Exim Bank. So I think they, they, they provide by far uh, one of the more significant sources of funding on the BRI. Uh, and, and, and part of the reason is because they are the only bank in town that can provide concessional finance, which is of, obviously of interest to a lot of the borrowers. Uh, so concessional finance, you know, they, they provide fundings at more favorable rates and at a discount, you know, generally to the market. And then, you know, next to China Exim Bank, you have China Development Bank, which is also considered to be a policy bank. But it behaves a lot more, uh, at least historically, like a commercial bank. So if you look at the type of loans they extend, then, you know, they tend to provide loans uh, generally within the market, because as you know, market is not a, a fixed concept. So it depends on the type of terms you can, you can negotiate. And then, and then moving on from China CDB, then you have the commercial banks. So the likes of Bank of China, ICBC, which has actually, I think, just opened a branch in Panama. I think I saw the news yesterday. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So brand new. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think one of my friends might have been sent over there. So uh, lucky him. Uh, so so I, I think I think there is that. Uh, China Construction Bank and so on. So there are more than a handful of commercial lenders in China that does this. Uh, in addition to that, there are various funds. Which uh, which they do different type of things, which I, I think it's too too much to go into here, uh, because I wanted to talk about Sinoshore. I think the one thing that everybody uh, may or may not be aware when we talk about BRI financing and investments is that is the role that Sinoshore plays uh, in 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 the whole scheme of things. Sinoshore is China's only export credit agency. So, so think of them like your U.S. Exim Bank in a way, like the U.K. UK EF, like the French Cofas, ULMS. Uh, so their job is to cover, uh, to a certain degree, the commercial and political and or political risks that might come uh, fall on a lender or investor for making investments into a foreign country provided that they can satisfy certain requirements. And these requirements tend to be, uh, you have to have enough Chinese content, you know, which is uh, basically the same rules as the other ECAs have for their own national content requirement. And we'll come back to Sanoshore in a bit. I think that's a fairly long-winded introduction. <laughs> sure. But you mentioned that the CDB acts somewhat like a commercial bank. How, do, how does that square off of it being effectively a state-owned policy bank? Well, I think, okay, there are three policy banks in China, right? So I think we're all, we've all heard of China XM, we've all heard of CDB. The other one is called the Agricultural Development Bank of China, which you, you almost never see uh, on the Belt and Road. They operate primarily domestically to help farmers. So let's put that aside. I think, I think the, the difference between China XM and CDB is that, yes, they're both uh, policy banks. Yes, they're both uh, report 
to the government. Uh, but I think in terms of the leadership styles, I think historically they were quite different. So I think from China Exxon's perspective, it was always clear that they were there to perform a state function. So their job was to facilitate export-import. Uh, their job was to ensure that uh, you know, Chinese investments overseas are supported, uh, as you can see from the, uh, from the name. Um, China Development Bank, on the other hand, you know, it's had, a, had, a, had a more less focused name. You know, so if you look at the two names of the two other banks, you know, China, it's actually quite an quite a innocuous name, you know, development. Um, I think what happened was that through the last few leaderships at China Development Bank, uh, we had uh, some quite talented and internationally experienced bankers who took the helm, especially, uh, I think, probably three leaderships ago, who um, who put in significant investments into the infrastructure. So he modernized a lot of the processes. He you know, put down a strategy for internationalizing and sort of modernizing the practices, um, as well as updating their whole suite of loan documents. So, so as part of that, you know, I think uh, the focus... Yeah, so 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 that was some time ago, but I think I think he made a significant input uh, impact on CDB and how he operates. Mm, okay, so it was kind of his under his leadership and so on. It kind of pushed more towards the quasi commercial aspect of doing financing. Indeed, and and obviously with. In order to lend commercially, what you need to have is a highly sophisticated team of people who can evaluate the risk as opposed to simply relying on sort of state-to-state friendship, right? So, so I think all that was set up in CDB. And as a result, if you look at their loan documents and the terms of lending, you know, it, it tends to be largely uh, commercial. Yes, there are some lower ones, there are some higher ones, but that's, again... You know, I think nobody goes out and get the same mortgage rates, right? So it's it's a function of the market. What do you think counts for the fact that Chinese lenders typically accept a longer term risk for international financial projects as compared to, you know, the standard Western lenders? I know that in like Chinese economic circles, this referred to as like patient capital sometimes. But it is interesting how the contrast is so stark. I think uh, there are a few points here. I think one, as a project finance lawyer, I think we're we're by nature sort of patient because uh, you know because when you're building a, a railway or a highway or a port, you don't see your returns right away, right? Typically, for these large infrastructure projects. The projects are loss-making in the first couple of years because if you look at the capital expenditure and you amortize it over the years, uh, the initial years are almost never profit-making, right? It's just the function of how the books are balanced. Uh, so, and of course, nobody has got spare change to just plop down for a highway, right? So, so all that has to be financed. And, and so I think bankers in this particular field uh, look at things slightly differently from, you know, the Wall Street bankers or, you know, bankers who are in there for, for a short-term revolver or three-year loan. You know, I, th- I think the, the, the discipline is different. Two, I think um, I used to joke about this uh, about you know a long time ago when I first sort of came into the China market, and you know the stereotype is that you know the Chinese are relationship driven, and 
and you know their their guanxi, you know it's it's all about you know the long term. And, and when I came, it's like yeah, well, I think bankers are bankers, right? But I think over time, I think especially over the last eighteen months, I've certainly uh, seen a very strong indication that in fact, uh, at least when it comes to the long term financing of infrastructures, I think Chinese lenders are are actually quite patient. Uh, so, as you would have been aware, there has been a lot of restructuring negotiations. You know, as as a result of the pandemic, you know, in a lot of the emerging countries, and almost on each and every one of these restructurings that I've been part of, I think I think it was remarkable to see uh, how willing the Chinese lenders are, uh, you know, are prepared to work with borrowers in distress. So, and, and, and frankly, you know, the, the cynic in me will say, well, of course, you know, your money's in, in the ground. Obviously, you have to try to get, work it out and reaching a deal is the best way. But I think it's more than that. I, th- I, think, I, think, I think the Chinese lenders and the institutions have enough experience now to see that a lot of the infrastructures are there uh, for the long term. And, you know, I, I think you need to give it time for the network effects to be built up. So, so, so as a result, you know, I think if you look over some of the news reports from last year, you know, almost all of the commercial loans that are in distress in Africa and some other countries are, are, are extended. You know, I, I think, I think, or in the are, are in the process of being extended, and typically, you know, extending a loan is 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 a fairly uh, onerous thing to do because banks want their money back right on time um but but what i've seen is that you know most of the commercial and the policy banks in china are, are quite willing to work with the borrowers obviously there has to be a way forward because they're bankers after all and they can't lose money uh but but they're they're, they're willing to explore a lot of different ways so if you look at things like uh, hemp and tota which happened uh, in sri lanka which happened well before the pandemic uh, it was a lease, so they brought in a Chinese company who who did a commercial lease, uh, paid up front for ninety nine years uh, as a way to help the government free up some cash to pay off its Western creditors. And then, so, so it's actually quite quite an interesting approach. And uh, certainly, I, I think there is a difference in how uh, in what I see in terms of you know the contractual theory and and the way relationship looked at. So yeah, so I'm a convert, you know, from 20 years ago. I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, now I actually do believe that is how many people approach this. Mm. But what what do you think accounts accounts for that? Is it some larger view of how relationships work? That's particularly uniquely, let's say, some Chinese insight of banking. Like, what accounts for this difference? <laughs> Well, I think I think one is that, as I say, you know, project financing is a long term endeavor, right? So people are, you know, you have to be a bit patient. You know, nothing makes money in the first five, ten years, oftentimes. You know, so so but the overall, it makes sense for the country and and the people concerned. I think I think certainly if you look at China and the high speed rail, um, you know, that that is uh, where most people have gotten to. You know, so yes, you know, it's a lot of investment. Yes, it's not necessarily money making, but overall, it's fantastic for the country, right? So, so there's that. Uh, there's also, I think, a cultural uh, approach to contracts, which is somewhat different from what we see in the West. So, as a common law, sort of in, quote unquote English Australian common law lawyer, you know, I think uh, the contract. Um, that we tend to see, we view it as a as a discrete 
document, right? So people, you know, we, we fight over the terms, we sign it, it's done, right? So let's get it done. Um, I think in other countries, including China, but not just limited to China, uh, there is a different view, which is that uh, contracts are a living document. So they are, they in fact embody the relationship of the two parties or the multiple parties in question. Uh, and in fact, one of the, I think it was the, a law professor from Northwestern University in the US actually had a paper on this some time ago, a long time ago. It's called the relational contract theory. You know, but, but I, think, I think, again, that's acknowledgement that this is not a uniquely China thing. Uh, but contracts are, in fact, living documents. Uh, when you put that into the context of a long-term infrastructure project, you know, I think most people say, of course, they are living. Right? So what happens when you have a monsoon or hurricane? You, know, you have to work something out. Right? So, so I, think, I suspect you know, it's a combination of a number of things. So when it comes to these big financing projects, I'm wondering how the project actually gets off the ground, like very, very early stages. Like saying, who comes to whom first? Is it like a Chinese contractor searching out different capital projects to therefore earn some or some profit? Is it the government comes to the find some contractor then say, hey, we want to do this project? Do, does the government go to China XM and then ask for a contractor? T- in typical orientation, how does that kind of uh, negotiation start? It depends, and there are a number of ways where you know business gets started. I think uh, by far the most common way is that uh, a lot of the Chinese contractors, and if we're talking about infrastructure financing, I think things are moving with different players joining the market. But if we're talking about traditional infrastructure financing, typically governments would have had projects in the pipeline for a while, and these contractors tend to have offices everywhere. Right, so they they, they, they they look at the government website, you know, they meet with governments and with planners and see what they need. Obviously, they're trying to sell their solution. Uh, obviously, uh, with the larger infrastructure project, there's always a tender procurement requirement. So the government will put things out to tender. Um, and as part of the tender, uh, the contractors who want to submit a bid are often required to, to, to provide terms, right? So... And, and, and nowadays, um, uh, as part of the terms, you have to show you have financing. So you have to bring your own money, as it were. So th- this wasn't the case before, but I think you know, in, the, in recent years, that's pretty standard. To answer your question, so yes, uh, oftentimes it's the contractor speaking with the local government, seeing that a project, there's a need, or seeing that there's a project that's going to come on to the market. They then feed that information back. Uh, oftentimes, the contractors will have to figure out how to get the money in as part of the bid. So they will speak to a number of banks. I think it's important to know that actually the banks compete with each other. So I think, I think one question that a lot of people ask is, that, oh, you know, how does China coordinate? There is some coordination at very high levels, but ultimately, the banks are competitors. You know, so, so they all want to look, look good and you know, get their bonus, and so on. So ultimately, at, at the working level, the banks are competitors, and they each try to outdo each other, you know, subject to sort of you know, prudential standards, of course. Uh, so, so for a lot of the projects that I see, um, you, know, you have multiple banks each submitting their bid. Uh, and then you know, if the contractor wins, then we proceed to, to actually doing the work. So, so if somebody's 
questioning as to how to tap Chinese financing, I think the critical path typically is either through the contractor, tell them to bring their own finance, uh, or uh, I think the local embassy often helps with making connections, uh, you know, as they do. So, but but I think typically what you need is a real project for them to go to the banks on, because the banks are, as you can imagine, uh, you know, looking at. All projects globally, so they they're quite busy. Mm-hmm. So so the contractor would take the project back to various banks and ask for for proposals from these banks in terms of terms and so on. Yeah, so I think one of the interesting features in China and and for the Belt and Road financing market is that Chinese lenders always need a project. So it, it, it's mm. it's almost always a requirement that they're lending against a project or maybe multiple projects, but there has to be an identifiable project. So yes, there are other product, you know, things like revolvings or corporate loans, but those are rare on the Belt and Road, and they're they're small, right? So when you go to them and say I want a loan, they ask you what for, and you have to say, look, it's for this expressway, right? So going to be built by this contractor, and this is. Why I'm coming to you because of the Chinese element? Okay, and one of the uh, features of the different types of financing that there are well different categories. So you have the typical commercial like loans. You have the concessionary loans, the buyer's credit. Uh, could you kind of explain the differences between those categories of project financing? Uh, certainly, and they're not all project financing. So I think I think if we if we're being precise, I think project financing refers to a very specific type of product, which is you know you take a project, you you ring fence all the risk, and then you know you structure it in a certain way. I think in practice, uh, most quote unquote project financings are done you know uh, are designed to suit the project and the law in question, so they never look like the textbook. Um, in terms of the loan products that you see from China, I think we already covered the zero interest loans. Those are the foreign A loans. You have the concessional loans from China Exim Bank and nobody else. So these are um, sort of usually interest rates are between you know two to three percent thereabouts. You know, concessional they they go on for a very long time. They're sometimes twenty years, maybe thereabouts. Um, Favorable terms, you know, the covenants are are quite favorable. You know, it's intended to 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 extend money to friendly countries to get their economies off the ground or to get a particular large uh, project off the ground. Uh, and then uh, those loans are, I think, the market standard globally is that if you're doing something concessional, you use your own law. So China Exim is no different. So they use Chinese law. Um, and then you have a different product from China Exim, which is the commercial buyer's credit. So a buyer's credit is where uh, I'm trying to sell something to you, Rashid. And I said, look, I've got this fantastic bank that you can talk to, or maybe three. Right? Why don't you pick something, uh, get them to lend you there. So it's almost like buying a house, right? So you, you borrow the money from the bank directly to pay me. I might make the introductions, but I'm not on the hook. right? So that's buyer's credit. Um, and then, of course, there are other options. Uh, I think. I think in recent years, one thing that's uh, becoming much more popular is seller's credit. So this is not anything new, but I think it's coming back. Um, and what a seller's credit is that, Rashi, I'm selling you this mug, right? But then you don't have to pay for it until next Tuesday. 
So effectively, it's that, right? It, 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 at its simplest form, it's paying later after you get the get the good in question. So the reason why it's becoming very popular, uh, certainly after the pandemic, is because one, the banks are becoming very cautious, and two, uh, there is a huge appetite for renewables right now. And renewables projects are different from your coal power plants or your Infrastructure projects, they tend to get done in three to six months, you know, except for the very large ones. So if we're talking about distributed solar, you know, things you put on your rooftop or, you know, a couple sort of uh, onshore uh, wind farms, they can get built quite quickly. Right. So so with uh, the traditional financing process, you know, it takes six months, you know, years to get. The, do- the money, you know, documents signed, the money in place, because you have to go through due diligence, you have to go through approvals and so on, negotiations. So that obviously doesn't suit uh, the new projects. So that is why. Uh, I, think, I think what we'll see uh, coming off the back of that in China is, a, uh, I guess, a resurgence in, uh, in companies who's done seller's credit looking to uh, reliquidate. So they have to you know, fill the hole somehow. And, uh, you know, there might be bond issuances or uh, factoring arrangements that we'll see. So factoring is where you sell a debt to somebody else for money immediately. So, so, so I think we're seeing that. And I think, I think that's actually a, a good development. The downside is, of course, as the seller, I'm on the hook on both ends. So if you don't pay me, I still have to pay them. You know, I, I'm still out of pocket, right? And if I sell your debt to the bank, oftentimes I'm on the hook for something. You know, it's not always a clean sell. So, so that's an interesting development. Uh, but I think it does help uh, certainly a lot of projects get off the ground quite quickly, especially for renewables. Okay. Yeah, I'm not aware of that much of the seller's credit aspect. Okay. So let's look at, let's get uh, pare down some more different kind of contract contract terms. So one of the, for some reason, topical aspects of Chinese loan contracts, primarily from the policy banks, is the nature of the forum selection and the governing law clause used in the contracts. Um, okay, so first I ask you, is it unique in any way for a Chinese law to be the governing, contract, governing law contract for these loans? And two... Do you think that some disadvantage that the the host or the borrowing governments would have? You know, coming as the background, if you look at Chinese BRI financing as a whole, you see two well, two camps, two big camps of documents. Okay, and this is generalizing quite a bit. Uh, the first camp are your zero interest loans and the China Exim concessional loan documents. Right. So these documents tend to have much more coordination because they, they all come from the government or they're directed by the government. Uh, the underlying rationale is to further Chinese interest. So that's understandable. Um, there's always um, uh, an understanding that you know, they're, they're, there's a strategy as to what they do. Right? So there has to be a diplomatic relations and so on and so on for that sort of products to be available. Uh, so, so with that being said, obviously you can expect some some degree of standardization there. Okay, but that that those type of documents are different from what you see on the market. So when it comes to the private, well, quasi private sector in China, uh, as you know, the commercial banks are you know sometimes uh, owned or you know significantly owned by the government, as you know. 
so 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 if you look at the Chexum, the Mofcom contracts, uh, they're almost all. Well, in fact, they're always governed by Chinese law. Uh, dispute resolution is always CTAC. Uh, that is the China Arbitration uh, Committee in, in, in Beijing, typically. Uh, and the rationale for that is this, and this is no different from what you see um, working on similar types of loans elsewhere. You know, if you're working with the UKEF, they want English law. You know, USXM, obviously, they want some New York law or some other type of US law. Uh, because they are, this is, in fact, part of... Uh, uh, the country trying to establish relations, right? So they're they're providing you some incentive, uh, and that's why you know, as as a matter of courtesy, as a matter of practice, you use the the lending country's law. I think that's standard. What you, the other camp are your commercial contracts. So these commercial loan contracts actually went through over the last 20 years, several phases of development. So when I first wor- worked on sort of cross-border financing in the early 2000s, the contracts were, let's just say, they, 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 they come in all types and forms, right? So I think that was the early days where uh, Chinese lenders were told to go out and lend, you know, to support these projects. They had, you know, limited experience, uh, there were limited infrastructure and, you know, I, th- I think the language capabilities were also quite limited back then. So one anecdote that I had back then was that, you know, we use what is considered standard in the market, which is the LMA slash APLMA with the Long Market Association templates coming out of London. Um, modified by their sister association in, in Asia. So that's what we tend to use. So I these documents tend to be about 50 pages to 100 pages long, fairly standard. Uh, and the response uh, to that first draft uh, was, um, this is too heavy. So the guy took it up and go, look, you know, he weighed it in his hand and said, this is too heavy. I said, what do you mean? So no, this contract is too big. That's what he's trying to say, but without even reading it. Uh, and, you know, and then coming to today, Right, with all of the banks having quite much more sophisticated risk management techniques and, and standardized documentation, you can see how far they've come. And, and part of that, I think, was uh, was the English law firms having their influence on the banks, because I think as part of the international lending market, the, you know, London and the English law firms have had quite a significant influence. Uh, it's different when it comes to the Latin America and the Caribbeans. Uh, so so we'll, we'll come back to that if you're interested. Uh, but typically, then what you see on the market nowadays, and in fact for the last 10 years at least, are so your APLMA-style documents coupled with English law, typically, uh, as the governing law. And, and, and historically, there were some pushes for litigation in London, but that very quickly phased out because that doesn't suit the emerging, the cross-border nature of the lending, because you, it's very hard to enforce, uh, you know, a, a litigation, uh, you know, a successful uh, lawsuit across the border. So, so I think I think that that's the that, that's that's the issue, right? So, if you take a judgment uh, from England and go to one of the non-colonial countries, even the 
pre-colonial countries, uh, it was you know they, they tend to have their local requirements. Uh, but if you go to you know even one of the Asian countries, people will you know, you'll immediately run into trouble. So that is why international arbitration is is pretty standard for BRI financing. And out of that, uh, typically the the bantering is always uh, the other side wants to use their own country as the seat of arbitration. Uh, China says, "Well, we like Beijing." And then you haggle over either London, Hong Kong, Singapore,、uh, and then London's too far. <laughs> this is to, uh, this is actually quite quite a practical example because that that's the level of discussion usually. London's too far, too expensive. Hong Kong's too Chinese、uh, to to the borrower oftentimes,、um, for better or worse.、Uh, I I don't believe that is the case, but that's the perception, and, and so so and everybody's happy with Singapore. So 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 if you look at a lot of the Uh, loan documents, you'll see Singapore as the forum by default,、mm. uh, which is fantastic、oh, okay. for Singapore by、yeah. default. <laughs> right, right. Okay, that's I, you mentioned. There are some differences in Latin American and Caribbean when it comes to the forum selection. Yes, so I think、uh, because of the history and because of current ties of、uh, the Caribbean countries, as well as the, many of the Latin American countries、um, with the U.S. A lot of the financing done historically were done using U.S. practices and New York law, and coming from、uh, mm-hmm. the perspective of a lawyer,、uh, documents from the U.S. contracts from the U.S. look very, very different、uh, from the English or、mm-hmm. anywhere else. Right, so, so, so,、okay. so, so the problem is then when you have banks from outside the region trying to do deals there, people. One are not familiar with non-U.S. documents;、uh, they tend to prefer New York law,、uh, and, and which makes it difficult for some of the deals to to land.、Uh, especially, I think, given sort of recent frictions, I think there are good reasons why lenders are wary of、uh, using anything. You know, Chinese lender would be wary of using anything you know governed by U.S. law. The same A data report also pointed out the dis- had a discussion on the cross default clauses in the Chinese loan contracts as well. But, but is there anything particularly unique about the use of cross default clauses in these loan contracts? Well, I think I, I read that article referred to.、Uh, I think it identifies a, a number of clauses uh, which uh, I think they, they consider to be of concern. I think, with the, as I mentioned earlier, I think the、uh, for better or worse, I think the foreign lawyers, particularly the English banking lawyers, actually had an enormous impact,、uh, you know, on the Chinese lending practices,、uh, you know,、uh, simply. Due to the reason that we got there earlier,、uh, we're there for a long time. You know, coming from Hong Kong and so on. So, so if you look at the history of cross default clauses、uh, and and look at the various templates on the London Loan Market Association's website, you'll see it dates back to its very first founding. So it's been around for about over twenty years, probably thirty years by now. Um, the rationale、uh, for cross default clause,、uh, typically a cross default clause.、Uh, let me just very quickly explain. Is a clause which says, in much shorter terms, that you know if you owe somebody else money, if you borrow money from somebody else and don't pay them back, then you also default under my loan. So a- as a result of a default, then you know potentially if I ask for、uh, under the contract, you have to pay me back early. 
So to paraphrase that, that's the that's what it provides for, and the uh, very simple summary of the effects, right? So people are like, well, if I don't pay this other guy, what should I pay you back now, right? So the rationale from a banker's perspective is actually quite straightforward, and I think understandable, which is, I think. From a credit worthy perspective, a credit worthiness perspective, if you borrow money from somebody else and you refuse to, or you can't pay them back, then the chances of you paying me back is smaller than originally expected, right? So as a result, uh, I should be worried. Uh, as a matter of law, there's a good reason for having that sort of clauses, and it typically lies in insolvency proceedings. So when a company goes bust and goes into insolvency. Then all of the creditors get together, and there are meetings and different procedures have to go through. And typically, the cutoff is that whether if you're a debtor at that point, so if if the company that that's bankrupt owes you money, then you can be part of the proceeding. If it doesn't yet owe you money, then back the line. Okay, so so this is not a very technical explanation. So the idea of the clause is to make sure that if somebody else, if, if they can't pay somebody else, obviously the 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 expectation is that somebody else will take actions, which may or may not result in the company going to bankruptcy. Okay, so as part of that, I wanted to see at the table. So that's why cross default clauses were designed to act in a certain way. Uh, of, of course, the second limb is because if you can't pay them back, you're not going to pay me back. So I think, I think um, from a, a lawyer's perspective and the banker's perspective, I think those are fairly typical and understandable. I think what is unusual is that Chinese lenders tend to go one step beyond, uh, and and rather than uh, a clause which says, "Oh, if you don't pay, if you borrow money from anybody else and you don't pay them back, it's a default." They say, in addition to that. If you default on this particular project, which is not the project, that, you know, it could be a road connecting to this project, then that's a that's a default here as well. So I think some people have identified that as a way to create leverage. But obviously, as a lawyer, I see a logical problem with that because most cross default clauses are drafted so wide as to capture everything. So it's going to capture that road anyways. Okay. Then, then why? Yeah. So, so if that's the case, and I, I think all properly drafted contracts will, will be will be done that way. So, in that case, then, then why do we bother adding in a specific project reference? I think that is the question. And and in my experience, actually, uh, you know, I, I think what I found is that it came out of a wish to ensure that they've done their job. So the way loans are underwritten in China is that there's a credit approval committee.、Uh, it's the same as many other banks. So the, the committee then you know rules on whether you can go ahead with the loan or not, but they'll they'll impose conditions. And one of the condition inevitably is that you know this money has to be used for this project. In, in some cases, when they approve a basket of projects, so for example, if you have a greenfield, a new project. In the middle、uh, of nowhere, far away from the city,、uh, in order for that project to succeed, you'll need power, you'll need infrastructure, you need sewers, you'll need road, you might need a port. You know, so a standalone project is not really standalone in that it requires other projects to to come online at the same time. And so, from what I see, is that where you have more than one projects that's considered commercially to be interconnected and, and interdependent. Then sometimes you see that sort of clauses being inserted, not because it's legally necessary, 
but rather they want to show that they've thought about this and you know this is a prudent, careful way to manage the loan. Another contentious clause that's been discussed in the A Data report, which I will I will add to the show notes, was the No Paris Club clause, effect- effectively. And you know it's surprising. I was very surprised that this got so much attention, coming from the Caribbean and you know seeing how the countries actually have to negotiate with the Paris Club lenders. It's not particularly surprising why the clause would this particular clause would be inserted in the contracts. So, what's your perspective of the No Paris Club clause in these loan contracts? I've actually been following that discussion myself and find it to be fascinating.、Um, I think if you look at the Paris Club and how things are structured, it was never meant to be something that you have to build into a contract in order to work. Right, so the Paris Club is a club of wealthy nations, effectively working together to grant developing nations debt relief. So, as part of that, usually the the governments, you know, they, they sit down. It's called a gentleman's club,、um, and they work out a plan, which then they implement domestically. Right, so you don't need something built into the contract for that. Right, so what you have here、uh, is the opposite, which is a contract which says. You know the parties acknowledge that you know、uh, these are private lending transactions and it's not subject to Paris Club negotiations or something along the line of that. I've seen quite a few of that. Typically, this type of clause is limited to one bank, one policy bank, and it's actually quite unique to that policy bank、uh, because it's different to the other policy banks. So we're being quite coy, but it's CBB, right?、Um, and, and, and this is identified by eight, by in the eight data article, which identify that you know.、Uh, I think at least fifty percent of CDB contracts has this clause, and and I remember asking、uh, quite a few of my banker friends back in the days. I said, "Why are you adding this? You know, so it's it's not something that you can deal with in a contract."、Uh, I think the issue is this. I think, as we mentioned earlier,、uh, China Exim clearly performing a quasi government function. You know, in terms of their lending,、uh, Agriculture Development Bank China they don't really venture outside of China、uh, in the way that we see.、Uh, so, so that leaves CDB in the middle, right? So they're 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 policy bank that operates in the commercial lending space. So as a result, I think、uh, a couple, oh gosh, probably almost ten years ago now, I think we started to see. Uh, a requirement to include a clause which says, you know, no Paris Club.、Uh, and after discussing this with quite a few people, including their credit committee people,、um, I think the general thinking is this: is that typically Paris Clubs apply to official bilateral loans, and and their view is that CDB is while a policy bank, they operate in the commercial space, so they they see themselves differently. And they lend differently, so as a result, they wanted to、uh, specify, spell out clearly that they're different to China Exim. So, if you look at the the DSSI initiative right now,、uh, you know it, it applies from China side、uh, to China Exim, and then the other,、uh, I think the Mofcom entity,、uh, can't recall the exact name,、uh, and and nobody else. Right. So, there's been a lot of criticism on why CDB isn't part of this. But if you look at How they lend, 
and you'll see that their concerns were 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 well founded, you know. So because you know, yes, they're a policy bank, but they don't behave like one, and they certainly don't play in the same space. So I think I think it came out of that and became, quickly became standard. Um, and do I see that clause elsewhere? I think I've seen some commercial banks take it up, you know, because it doesn't hurt. And frankly, if you look at borrowers, they don't really. You know they, they don't really see the point, but I think it doesn't harm them. Uh, so 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 over time, you see a lot of the uh, CDB loan agreements having that, and then perhaps a few of the uh, commercial bank documents also having that. You know, imported, but 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 it certainly isn't isn't the standard for the commercial banks. And of course, then the other very contentious clause is the confidentiality arrangements. That are built in. Now, this one is 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 tricky because a lot of the confidentiality of loans is a a concern of the borrowing governments, where they can decide if they actually want to be transparent on how to um, explain loans to their population or to international bodies. But then, very oftentimes, when you have the Chinese loans involved, the blame is obviously placed on the Chinese side about say, oh, you're not actually providing information on your loans. But in any case, how, how do you see that, that conversation? Well, Rashi, I think you frame the issue perfectly because um, I certainly wouldn't be very happy, and I imagine you wouldn't be happy if your banker goes out and said, "Look, this is how much they have, you know, on the loan with us, you know, publicly, right?" So I think I think as bankers, they're they're regardless of which country they operate in, typically there's a, a legal requirement for them to be confidential, so they can't tell people how much money you bank with them, right? So so I think as a result of that, it's not just the Chinese lenders. But in fact, if you look at the other lenders, most OECD and non-OECD banks don't disclose as a matter of course. Okay, so so there are good reasons. So there are legal reasons for that. And I think you know, very pragmatically, there are also good commercial reasons. As I say, uh, as I said earlier, um, the banks compete with each other, right? And 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 what do they compete on? You know, in all as almost always, it's always the price that is the interest rate. Or the terms, so can they loosen up the terms? So what you have is if you have the banks, you know, quickly disclosing their terms and say, "Oh, this is the the loan agreement we signed willingly," uh, and this is how much it costs. Then of course you have people sort of shopping, you know, and say, "Look, oh, well, you, you lend this much to Angola, why not me?" Right? Then how do you explain that? It's a different country. So, so I think I think. Uh, I think the, the I can understand the, the 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 how nice it would be to have transparency from a research perspective, but I think from a business perspective, um, unless the the bars you know expressly wish to disclose, I don't think the banks are in a position to disclose. The multilaterals like the World Bank, IFC, uh, ADB, African Bank, uh, they're different. Okay, they are multilaterals. They have to be transparent because they have, you know, nations as shareholders. So that 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 they are vested in seeing how they operate. But we're not talking about them here, are we? This is a more, let's say, underground question. So when you are doing loan contracts for these other international projects in various jurisdictions, I would say I would assume you have to work with local lawyers uh, on the ground to actually have a good contract designed for the loans. Uh, yes, of course. Um, 
I, I think again, this gets into sort of conflict of law questions. But typically, uh, what makes a contract valid, you know, in terms of you know what you have to do to sign it to make it a real legally binding, is typically governed by the local law. So if you're uh, uh, if the Bahamas government, you know, you're subject to your own laws. If you're a company in the Cayman Islands, you have to sign in accordance with Cayman Islands laws. Uh, so you always have to have a local counterparty. In fact, when you have a sovereign borrowing, so when you have the government borrowing, in addition to the local government vetting the process, we also get the AG involved oftentimes. So the attorney general of the country and get them to also issue a legal opinion and say this is all done legally and properly. Uh, as you can imagine, you know, I, th- I, think, I think one thing that a lot of people... Uh, Tend to tend to forget is that the banks are not in the business to lose money, right? So I think that 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 that's slightly of, you know taken for granted. But also after signing and the banks providing the loan, the borrower has all the money, right? So they got their hands on the money. What does the bank have? Just the contract, right? Maybe some collaterals, right? Uh, security, but you know it's not. It's never easy to enforce collaterals. So, so that's why it's always in the bank's interest, regardless of which bank you are, to make sure the contract works, it's done properly, legally, you know. And, and I can't think of any case where a local lawyer is not involved. Although for, for possibly the MOFCOM, you know, the zero interest loans, the diplomatic type of loans, you might have exceptions because those are very state to state. But even the concessional loans, or certainly the commercial loans, you always have lawyers. You should. And uh, I think most of the, in fact, an overwhelming majority of the deals I see will always have local lawyers, not even if not international lawyers like us. I think that's, that's obviously like not discussed usually. It's always seen as Chinese people making Chinese contracts for Chinese companies in a foreign country. They never realize that <laughs> we well, have to have local players involved as well. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think I think usually it's it's uh, it's it's one of the, it's you always a challenge to find the right you know partners you work with in the local mm-hmm. jurisdiction, you know, and you know, and that's part of the dis- discipline of working as an international lawyer because you have to find the right partners, you have to make sure that they understand where you're coming from. Or, so you know, I, I think like every you know every deal you do you know internationally. Uh, it, it's a part of cultural exchange, so yeah, uh, you know th- that's what makes it fun. I think. Right. <laughs> okay, so I guess I have a question, like a more um, p- uh, regional question. So one of the pro- maybe it's actually the largest Chinese-funded project in the Caribbean, the Bahamar Resort mm. in the Bahamas. I, I definitely think it's the largest one that so far, at least. It was, I think. <laughs> It was four point something billion dollars. I think maybe three billion was from China XM, or some some very large number like that. And I believe you were involved in that in some way. <laughs> yes, um, the Bahama. Uh, I think this the restructuring happened around 2014, 2015, I believe. So it was some time ago. Uh, yes, I was uh, part of that. Discussions, so I can't talk about the details. Uh, again, you know, so so I'm on the duty. <laughs> um, but I think I think based on the um, sort of the publicly available information, I think I think I'll say a couple things. I think I think um, I represented the government at that point. Um, 
And, and, and the difficulty there has always been that what do you do when you have a major project that can potentially affect the entire country's credit rating um, stall? So on the one hand, you have the sponsor, which says, oh, you know, the, it's all the contractor's fault. They can't build to standard. Uh, on the other hand, you have the, the builder, the contractor says, well, they kept on changing what they want. I can't, you know, uh, so, you know, you sit there and go, well, I can see why you have a problem, you know, but, but what, you, what you then have is a funding gap. So you have you don't have enough money. I think they missed the season for tourists. Uh, so, so then the project was in trouble. Uh, what I understand was that the sponsors actually, at one stage, they, they worked really hard to keep the project alive. And they went as far as to approach the Prime Minister of Bahamas for, for help in intervening with uh, the Chinese uh, to buy some reprieve. So uh, my understanding was that that did happen. So I think this is all in the newspapers. Uh, <laughs> uh, and in fact, uh, and China XM agreed to a restructuring, uh, to deferring some of the payments. And in fact, the contractor, uh, the Chinese contractor, also agreed to take a stake in the project. So they pumped in another something like $700 million. Um, so a significant investment over the original investment. Uh, when the prime minister uh, met with the sponsor, to convey the good news, he was told overnight. I think I think this is what happened, and and obviously I wasn't there in the room. But uh, the message was that oh, we filed for Chapter Eleven in the U.S. overnight. Yes, in Delaware, I believe. Uh, yeah. So 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 that's the problem. So at which point you all went south, right? So what do you do when you the government said, well, you know, we we try really hard to save this project, but what do we do, right? So I think I think. It was many, many uh, days uh, of sort of quite grueling. The negotiations happened at a hotel nearby in Beijing. We were all locked in the room, you know, day and night. You know, I think, I think, yeah, it was just, you know, obviously China Axum had a huge contingent. You had everybody there, right? So we were there to try to work out a way forward. Uh, luckily, you know, I think it worked out. I think you had Chao Tai Fook took over, you know, had the Rosewood Hotel going in there. Uh, from what I hear, you know, I, I think it's going well. Um, all I can say is I was really impressed with how professional and, and, and hardworking the people were uh, in a very difficult position. You know, I, I, I'm aware of the, the press that came out of it uh, because it's always easier to, 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 to do an autopsy. Uh, after the fact, but I, I, I think you know. I think if you were uh, any other government put in that difficult position, I think they'd be hard pressed to find a better way forward. And of course, following this matter from the Caribbean side, it's very interesting to contrast the reporting from before the project started, during the project, during the fiasco, and then post fiasco solution, and. The U.S. media, for example, before the project started, were very, very pro-project. I think part of the reason because the the contractor, the China Construction of America uh, company, CCA, that built the Bahamar, they built some really large 
projects in America. In New York, they built the, the Hamilton Bridge. In Miami, they built this new, very modern condo complex. So they were using Bahamar as this big America's showpiece. As a, you know, that was what was reported in WSJ before the project started. Then at the risk of fiasco, this is also a year later still, the tone changed quite a lot. Where it now became Chinese contractors trying to unfair local sponsors. The problem is that if you're in the Caribbean, you know for a fact that the local, the sponsor was not a local person. He was a Swiss Armenian guy. And he, various things he said during the, the entire proceedings and the entire fiasco was very upsetting for a lot of people in the Bahamas, even the government. So it was not some clear-cut rule of Chinese company trying to offset and debt trap a local government or local company. But yet that was how it was reported. But now, after the restructuring, the work that the lawyers did and the government did, the Bahamar project is now open, it's operational, they employ thousands of people, and it's good to see that some things do work out. Yeah, I think when the Bahamar project was originally done, it was definitely a period where there's a lot of love on all sides, right? So in China, I think, I think the, uh, at, at that stage, I recall the narrative was, oh, you know, this is a fantastic development. You know, this is one of the major, one of the largest projects done in the Western Hemisphere. You know, you'll bring people closer and, you know, fantastic local economy. And, you know, <laughs> a couple of years later, you go back and revisit and the narrative is very different internationally. I think I think uh, I don't think I've heard too much of it now in China. Beyond that, you know, Chao Taifu took over; it went well, you know. And, and I think there, but, but also, I think one other thing that came out of it is that you see far less casino lendings, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So following on from that, there is another fairly major China loan deal in the Caribbean that's frequently in the media, and this is the North South Highway in Jamaica. So some some quick context for listeners. Since 1999, Jamaica has been trying to build this really massive highway. It's, you know, it's a boon to the economy and so on. And they couldn't for various reasons. So they approached uh, con- Chinese contractors in 2008 to get the highway built. But they also were at the same time where as part of the IMF program they were under, they don't want to increase the debt in a substantial way. So they worked with an alternative, fairly unique deal where the Chinese company will build the road and the loan will come in. But then as a repayment, it will be a land clarification. So it transfers some land to the company. Then the company used that land to, you know, build some other infrastructure and earn some profit from that. And that was, you know, I think it's very amazing that they did that. But of course, that is contentious for many people. What do you think of that? Is this land clarification deal for loans unique um, outside of China? And I want to go inside China. Taking, uh, there are a number of questions in there, Rashid, and I'll come to uh, in turn. So I think the qu- first question is, uh, is it common to see uh, Chinese financings repay by land? I think that, that that's the first question, right? So, so and the answer is no, it's quite rare. Uh, you know, I think for 
And certainly in China, what you do see are uh, local projects where you have um, develop developers that buy up the land around the project because you know infrastructure drives up development and prices, and everybody benefits. Um, uh, I think the the um, the model of using development and land to pay for infrastructure actually. Is is very highly refined by the Hong Kong market. So if you look at the Hong Kong subway system, uh, that the, the, the Hong Kong MTR Corporation, they, they are experts in developing land. You know, they'll build a station, they'll they'll develop land around it, and use all the proceeds to pay for the the investment. Uh, you, you don't see that very much because you know, obviously, land prices in Hong Kong and the population density is very different to. Most other places, and you really have to have a lot of faith in the long-term development of both the project and the country to 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 accept land, right? So I, I think uh, you don't see that very often because uh, for Chinese developers, you know, it, it's it's a high-risk move, right? You don't know what will happen. The land is in the country, subject to the country's laws. You know the laws can change; they might not like you in a few years. So I think there's a lot of a lot of faith that's required. So you don't see that very often, no. Um, but it's good to see it. You know, I think it's fantastic because what that means is there will be more investment, uh, and there is right. a, a lot of trust in in where the country is going. So I think that's fine. I'm not part of the project, so I don't know the mm-hmm. the, the, the details. Um, yeah, but I think you know, one of the plans is that check would check and probably in collaborate with some other contractor also actually built like a 2,000 rooms hotel. Oh, fantastic. It was a huge, 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 huge deal. Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and, and what that means is uh, there will be local jobs and, you know, I think I think sometimes when you speak to people about sort of Chinese contractors, they think of a ship shipping in 50,000 Chinese workers. That just isn't true. You know, can you imagine that? You know, I, I, you know, one, it's very expensive to ship people overseas. And two, I think nowadays uh, people don't want to do that. You know? so, so I think ultimately uh, you, you might have, you know, a handful of Chinese, you know, engineers, but then, you know, all of that workforce will come from the local population, which is fantastic. Um, so there's that. Um, the second question is, uh, in terms of collateralization, you know, I think as a matter of law, what that refers to is actually taking security, so like a mortgage, right? So do we see the taking of mortgage as standard for Chinese lenders? Again, the question is, is quite rare, you know, uh, and, and most people, will, some, some will find this view to be controversial because it's it's almost you know natural instinct for bankers to want land, you know because that's the most easily understood store of value. Uh, but when it comes to cross border lending, you know a lot of countries have restrictions on who can buy the land. Right? If you're foreign, you can't hold the land. You know this is the same. You know regardless of whether you're in the developing countries or developed countries. So Australia, you know foreign investors cannot hold certain types of farmland uh, or urban land um, you know, without FERB approval. So, so I, think, I think as a result, 
you know, yes, uh, bankers in China lending to the Chinese, they love land. But once they go overseas, they find taking land as security very difficult. And, and also, it's, it can be expensive. So a lot of times, if you take a mortgage over local land, you have to pay stamp duties and other things. And, and nobody's willing to pay for that, you know, because, uh, because it comes from the borrower. The borrower won't, won't pay for that. So a lot of times, all you have to do is to structure a different uh, security package. So let me bore you. And stop there. Uh, I think that's enough. Uh, enough technical. The third question, which I'll come back to, uh, is why do they do this? Okay, and, and I think this is a bigger question, which is um, Chinese BRI. So the BRI financing, actually, as far as I could see, came out of, as I mentioned, the, the going out policy. So in the earlier days, they tend to focus on exports of resources or minerals or oil into China. Right, so there's always a sale, a trade that happens. So we call that pre-export financing. So what that means is that the banks will give you money for you to develop a mine or a factory. It doesn't have to be a mine. Uh, then, which will then, once completed, produce something which can be sold. Mm. Right. So the focus is always not on the asset itself. Uh, that that is important, but the primary focus is always on who. What you can sell, who you will sell it to, and are they good for the money? Mm. So, 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 what I mean by that is then the focus is always on the contract. So, what happens is that bank, the, the banks in China have gotten used to the idea that you have to have a steady source of revenue, as you can expect. And a lot, a lot of times, what that involves is a Chinese buyer, you know, state-owned or otherwise, oftentimes state-owned, because it helps with the bank's understanding how creditworthy they are. Uh, signing a twenty-year contract, they say, "Look, I'll buy all the oil or this much oil from you over the twenty years." So you'll see some of that in Ecuador and Venezuela, for example. Uh, and over time, uh, I think people who uh, cut their teeth on pre-export finance move into other areas, such as project finance, infrastructure, power, energy. They became the backbone, but that 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 uh, discipline went with them. So, so a lot of times nowadays with these people sitting in, in, in managerial sort of senior positions, uh, it, it's, it's actually much easier to get a project to off the ground if you can demonstrate a steady revenue flow. Right. So I think I think what you see there is a revenue flow from land rentals, and you know, so we're we're artificially creating a contract which can support uh, a future revenue, which helps with getting the financing off the ground. Right. Because with the same Jamaican North South Highway, government also granted check a fifty year toll um, operation license oh, as yeah. well. Yeah. So I think that's usually what we call a concession license. That's that's quite normal. So for for toll roads tend to uh, toll roads tend to have much longer concessions because you know you don't collect that much money. Um, with power projects, you know uh, they, they tend to be shorter. Uh, there are other things like airports and ports, and so so I think with concessions again, concession by itself usually re- involves the government giving you some right. So some type of exclusive right to do something, and then which, which you can then monetize. What's the significance of Caribbean offshore financial markets to global BRI loans? Right, uh, you're referring to uh, SPVs like uh, in, in in Cayman or BVI, and okay. Uh, 
Okay, so for the BRI infrastructure lending, I see very little of that. Okay, there are in fact rules against using shelf companies nowadays. So, uh, yeah, so the, the uh, and it has to do with anti money laundering and so on because it makes the the process somewhat opaque to the, to the outsider. So, so there's that. However, when it comes to corporate lending, acquisition finance, take privates, leverage buyouts. You see them everywhere, right? So, so it's almost ubiquitous. I mean,、um, when I was in Hong Kong,、uh, the standard,、uh, the standard project for an investment into China will always involve some type of, you know, whatever the com- company is at the very top, and then some type of either BVI or Cayman company investing into a Hong Kong company, which then goes into China. So that that's the standard.、Uh, What we call the pre-IPO financing structure back in the days, and and, and the re and I think、um, at that stage, Cayman companies were by far more popular because I think they were easier to list. But I'm not an IPO lawyer, so I could be wrong.、Right. <laughs> um, but but I recall、um, for a very very long time. I'm sure this is still the case that for corporate, you know, sort of、uh, capital markets driven transactions,、uh, BVI Cayman they are. Very very popular. They're almost ubiquitous、uh, on transactions. But for the larger, so even with the bilateral style transactions, you don't see that.、Um, I think there are two reasons for that. So one is transparency in terms of anti money laundering. So it's not transparent to the outsider, but to the governments, you can see what's going on.、Um, two is、uh, bilateral investment treaties. Okay, so China has a very large and growing、uh, set of treaties. I think rank, coming in behind Germany. So earlier in the conversation, you mentioned Sunshore. Didn't actually get into it yet. So it, it appears to be that Sunshore is the largest company that no one knows of. In some sense, when it comes to、um, exports <laughs> from China. So what exactly is Sunshore, and why don't we know more about it? Yeah. So so in fact, I think I think.、Uh, It is sort of the worst, you know, one of those、uh, companies that hides in plain sight. They're everywhere in China. So if you speak to people who are active on the BRI, they know exactly what Sinoshore is. But for a lot of people,、um, they might not be familiar with what it does, or even if you heard of them, you might not know what they do or how they operate. And the reason is because they're never on the front lines. Okay, so they're an insurance company. They are ECA, so they take a step back. They almost never. Sit there with you at the table, okay. So they、uh, historically they've relied on the banks and the borrowers to to put together a bankable deal, which is then presented to Sinoshore、uh, for their preliminary approval. They'll come back and say, "Yeah, okay, we're willing to insure subject to the following ten conditions, right?" And then if you meet them, then then they'll issue insurance policy.、Uh, so how that affects、uh, Chinese lending is this: Sinoshore. Used to be one was China Exim, so back in the days, and then, yeah. So as part of the WTO accession, and shortly after they 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 came out and they 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 were formed by the government very quickly,、uh, for this purpose, which is to provide export credit insurance.、Um, So for a very long time, and still they work very closely together, but they perform very different functions. So as you can see, China Exim、uh, lends. While Sinoshore insures, if you look at U.S. Exim, on the other hand, it both insures and lends. So, so you know, the, the, as you can see, you can see the link there. 
I think uh, one way, uh, there are a couple ways uh, in which sun is important. The first one is that it is actually probably the, the, the best mechanism for coordination. So, so you asked early on about sort of coordination amongst different lenders and typically the, the view, and this is not just my view, is that they compete a lot. There might be some coordination, but, but not very much. You know, so because they're competitors, and I think that's as intended. Um, but when it comes to Sinoshore, there is only one game in town, and they have a very sophisticated team of uh, people who actually underwrite and and do due diligence on the legal framework, much like uh, MIGA at, at the World Bank. Uh, so for each of the countries uh, out there, they actually have a notional insurable limit. So what that means is that. Uh, if that country borrows or, or you know, if Chinese lendings or investments into that country goes above that limit, then Sanoshu is no longer willing to support, right? So, th- so that increases the lenders and investors' risk. That means reducing their appetite. So there's that. So they, they won't tell you they won't do it, but you know, it's, uh, there's a limit, there's a guideline. And but can, can limits be adjusted? Yes, Yes, right. so they, they review that, right? Um, mm. So, so there's that, uh, and two, I think Sanoshore acts to ensure there's some lowest common denominator amongst lending terms in the earlier days. Now that the, the documents and structures are becoming much more sophisticated, it's, it's not so much of a deal. Uh, but back then, you know, the, the the eight or ten conditions imposes could be, you know, very novel. To the to the new bankers who are new to the game, so like, you must take the security. Why, you know? So 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 you know. So obviously those days are are long behind us. Um, mm-hmm. I think the third point with Sinoshore is that it, it helps with because they're ultimately holding the bag. Okay, so so with a lot of the lenders, they are very keen to involve Sinoshore in a lot of the discussions. And and, yeah. and and these are not just Chinese lenders, you know, uh, international lenders work with Sinoshore as well. So hmm. it acts as a, a repository of knowledge for what's going on in the market, um, and, and it does that job quite well. So, so, I, I th- so how, how does the international lenders work with Sinoshore, given it's a, a, you know, a Chinese SOE? Well, uh, well, Sinoshore actually doesn't require you to be Chinese to, to be eligible. Oh, right? the, the, the only okay. requirement is that one, you, whatever you're financing must have a Chinese element. Okay? So mm. a Chinese element, I'm sure you've heard of this, Rashid. So it's, it's a loosely interpreted term. Uh, but typically what it means is that whatever the goods or services, uh, I think right now it's about 30 to 50% has to come from China. Right? So there are different uh, thresholds for different type of goods. So, you know, for example, for nuclear, you know, there are favorable nuclear technology, there there are more favorable sort of sort of terms. I think for high speed rail, there the terms are more favorable. So so there's that. Uh, and then they have three requirements. So you have to meet the DSC, all financial requirements, you know, so so those are pretty standard. So as long as you meet the Chinese element, you could be HSBC, you could be Standard Charter, you could be BNB Paribas, you know, and you can still get insurance from Sinoshore. I think that's actually no different from UKEF or the other uh, ECAs. 
Uh, well, very quickly. So Sinusure right now for, for, for the purposes of the BRI offers three types of insurance. It, it offers other types of insurance or international trade insurance, investment insurance, and so on. But I think for financings, they basically do a buyer's credit insurance, which is if the banks don't get paid back by the, by the, by the developer, the borrower, then Sinusure will step in. Um, a seller's credit, which we talked about. So if the seller gets caught in the middle, they will pay them. And then there's a seller's refinancing insurance, which is if a seller tries to uh, sell the debt to a bank, then they can insure that bank. So so off the back of that, then you see why a lot of things are structured this way. Right. So you mentioned a few times about how the banks compete against each other. Could you spell that out a bit? Because also that's one of the surprising features people do not think about when it comes to Chinese lending. Well, yeah. So, so, uh, well, I think in my, if you read a lot of the, the, the especially the, the international press, you'll see the narrative that China is one. So if a bank you know, in, in in operating in Shenzhen lends to a certain project, it's China lends to this country. Uh, if ICBC uh, opens up in Panama, you know, I, I suspect in a few days, like China goes into Panama. So I, I think that's, I think coming from a Chinese perspective and having lived here for a while, I think that's obviously not true. You know, I think 1.4 billion people don't think all alike. There's no way that could happen. Um, what happens is this. So yes, uh, many of the larger banks that, that play on the BRI are state-owned, but ultimately they're managed by different people. They also have private shareholders, including myself in some of the banks. So, so, so you know, and, you know they're listed companies. Uh, so, so I think that the thing is that, you know, the bankers and the banks themselves are all trying to, you know, report good news to their shareholders and certainly to the government that they've, they've done their job well and they made money. So as part of that, uh, it's only natural to, you know, I think in chi- Chinese, um, you know, there's a saying, 货比三家不吃亏, right? So you, of course you, you compare prices, right? So, so I think with the contractors, it's the same thing. So if, if it's, uh, you know, say, Amila Falls in Guyana, you know, they'll come back and say, look, you know, we've got this huge hydro project. Uh, who's willing to finance? Can you give me a term sheet? And they'll, they'll approach the banks they work with. And the banks will actually either say, no, we can't do that. Or they'll say, look, yeah, you know, we'll give you this much interest and, you know, this is the security required. Then they sit, you know, then the contractors and the borrowers sit down and decide which one's the best, right? So, so there's that type of competition. Um, apart from the BRI, I think people might be surprised that um, uh, the competition is even worse. So when it comes to corporate and capital markets related lending, like like acquisition financings uh, in China, so right now because of tension with the U.S., uh, there are uh, there are trends where Chinese companies listed in New York are coming back and you know trying to list in China or, or Hong Kong. And the prices they're able to extract from the banks are amazing, right? So, so you know, they tend to play off, you know, a dozen banks against each other, you know. And, yeah, and, and, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm seeing that right now, you know, in real time. So, so I, I think, I think it, it's incorrect to think that the Chinese are all, you know, they all sit down and wait, wait for that phone call from Zhong Nanghai and say, oh, yes, this is your deal, <laughs> you know. 
I don't think there's anybody who does that. You know, it's crazy. Right. You know, these are these are too big of an operation. Yeah, I'm curious if there are any material differences between the operations of Chinese lenders in Latin America and Caribbean as compared to somewhere like Africa. Well, I think that's a very big question, Rashid, and I'm not sure I can answer you. Um, uh, I think. Generally speaking, what I can say is that uh, uh, from a legal perspective, the documents are similar. Uh, uh, obviously, there's an American influence uh, in Latin America, you know, so people are much more used to the U.S. way of doing things. I think Africa tend to be uh, more open-minded in, 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 in that they haven't they, – they, they deal with all different banks, you know, for a very long time. So, so I, think, I think there's that. Um, in terms of cultural perceptions, and I think this is one reason why what you're doing is so fantastic, is because I do think there is very limited knowledge generally uh, in China, uh, and I imagine it's the same on your side as well, uh, about what things are like in the Caribbeans and, and to, a, to, a, to a lesser extent in the Latin Americas because uh, the cultures are very different. Uh, and I do think there's a perception uh, from the bankers here and those uh, the stakeholders on the BRI that um, uh, projects in Southeast Asia, you know, in Central Asia, you know, South Asia are. Uh, well understood. I think people are very experienced. You know, there, there's, uh, they know how to deal with the Chinese. Uh, for matters in Africa, I think it's a bit more difficult. Uh, there are a lot more different countries, a lot more different cultures. But I think, generally speaking, I think the Chinese are getting there. You know, I think, I think the bankers, the contractors, they've made significant investments over the years. Uh, it's becoming very sophisticated as well. So you see. Uh, a progression from the early minings and oil and gas, uh, moving on to uh, industrial parks and you know sort of increasingly tertiary investments. Um, for Latin America and, and certainly, uh, and oftentimes the Caribbeans is included as part of Latin America as part of the discussion. Um, I think people view it as as quite hard. You know, quite a hard market to play in. Um, there are a lot of different cultures, and also there's a lot of different um, nuances that I think people are not, not not used to. So, you know, if you just look at Ecuador and Venezuela, you know, that, that's very different from the other countries, right? So, you know, so you see a lot of investments in Brazil. Uh, I certainly worked on Guiana and Suriname and a couple other places, Colombia. Uh, but I think overall, I don't think we have the same level of understanding. And I think that's one of the challenges. And finally, is there anything you recommend to listeners to read or, or watch or listen to if they want to learn more about the loan topics we've been discussing here? Uh... Well, uh, well, I'm hoping to write something, but <laughs> but, but uh, I've been hoping to write something for about twenty years and never got off the ground. Um, um, I, I think I think one thing that I will recommend, and this is not in Chinese, uh, are, are the the various articles by uh, Deborah Brodigan and her team from Johns Hopkins. I think they are fantastic uh, in terms of the analysis and very even-handed in, in the analysis. I think I think one one of the issues with uh, sort of understanding sort of uh, Chinese lending investments is that there's a lot of noise. Uh, 
right? So I think oftentimes you have to come back down into the the, the te- technical analysis, um, and which is uh, difficult because it's always a combination of economics, international relations, and and, and sort of the law. Because uh, I think one of the eight data's. Um, criticism was that oh there's a use of special accounts you know oh that that's meant to hide money no that isn't <laughs> you know as far as i'm aware you know the reason why we do that is because you want to make sure the money is not trapped right you know so the, so if things go wrong the lenders get it, get it back so I, I think i think it's probably a very big ask uh for for an article to address all of the angles mm. because i don't think you know none of us are equipped to do that but if you read uh, a selection of the different articles and you get a pretty good picture thanks so much Khan E for coming on the podcast today this has been a really enjoyable conversation Rashi, the pleasure is mine <laughs>